Okay, so you want to get into multifamily affordable housing, but you don't know where and how? So listen today to Jared and Dane Collins' approach on how they selected their market and how they did all the running so you know how to spot a deal. Today on this episode of Affordable Housing Real Estate Investing, we are going deep. We want to make sure we provide you guys with the details so you guys know how to look at a deal and how to approach it. So without further ado, Dane, Jared, and my guest host, uh, co-host, Andrea, welcome to the show, everyone. How's everyone doing today? Welcome, welcome. We're good. We're doing good. good. Thanks for having us. I love it. So this is one of the part of the deep dive series that we're having on multifamily affordable housing. Uh, Dane, Jared, they were so nice to offer their time and actually recognize that there was a need in the market and in the industry to talk really deep about this stuff. Sometimes in podcasts, we only talk about how many thousands of doors someone's has, but no one actually talks about like, hey, how do you actually look at this deal? How did you actually analyze this deal? Why are you taking this deal in, in the first place, given all the rising interest rate environment? So let's maybe start there, actually, Dane and Jared. Like, in general, what are the different market cycles there are, like an uptrend or a downtrend that you want to be aware of, that the audience should be aware of? And how did you guys adjust your debt strategy and CapEx strategy based on those market cycles? Let's start there. I totally lost connection, guys. Sorry. And I'm just coming back. <laughs> So I don't know what was going on. I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> it was getting the wheels of death and it came on. And I felt like someone asked me a question. So uh, we'll, yeah, we'll do, uh, Martin, add Martin. this to the blooper reel and we'll, uh, we'll try it again. It's all that snow no. in Colorado. I love it. I love it. Well, Jerry, we wanted to understand, hey, what are the different market cycles there are that the audience needs to be aware of? And how did you guys adjust your debt strategy, your CapEx strategy based on those market cycles? Yeah, definitely. Thanks. Thanks for the repeat question. Um, so yeah, I think in general, we're looking at properties before we even consider anything related to the details of the properties, just knowing where are we in the cycle. Um, you know, real estate tends to be cyclical. It's not a complete up and down. It's sort of like a, a gradual increase and it sort of plateaus and then drops. And so we always want to know are we in more of like an upward trend. Uh, so essentially where properties are selling, um, you know, the, the days on market are low. Um, you have, you know, usually multiple offers, things like that. And then, you know, you get to more of a plateau phase where uh, properties are, are, are staying on the market longer. You're, you're maybe not seeing this, this recycling of properties like we saw, gosh, over the last couple of years is like somebody owned it for maybe 18 months and they're already turning around and selling it and selling it for a significant premium. And so you, you see less of that. Um, more of a valuation based on the actual performance of the property and not kind of numbers that sometimes you're trying to figure out how on earth did they get that value uh, to then, you know, an actual dip or decline where you may see cap rates in your area actually increase, which effectively should decrease the value of the property. So we're trying to factor that up. And then once we know where we're at or where we think we're at in the market cycle, we then want to make sure we have debt that matches up with that. So for instance, if we feel like, gosh, the market's red hot and maybe the good times are coming to an end uh, here in the next year, two, three, then we need you know debt that's going to be longer term. Uh, we don't want our rate to come. We don't want our rate to adjust or, or the term to come due in a downward uh, trending cycle, because if that means the value is going to uh, decrease, you could be in trouble. So we're matching that part up. And then the, I guess the flip side of that would be if the market's super hot, maybe we'd get 
a little less risk averse and say, hey, we'll take something that's going to, the rate's going to adjust in three years, or maybe it would balloon in three years because we think we're just going to fix this thing up and, and essentially flip it anyhow. Um, and then along with that, kind of the third piece is just our, what are we going to do with the property? Most of what we do is try to buy and hold long term. But again, I think when there are opportunities, would we consider selling something? Um, we actually did that with our initial property. We, we bought our first property ever. We ended up selling in kind of that that frenzy stage where, where things were selling. And so we want to, we want to put all those together um, where we think we're at in the market, what sort of debt do we need? And then what, what's ultimately our goal or, or exit strategy with the, the property and align those together. I, I love that you talked about lining up the debt with the cycle, because not a lot of people think about that. Right. So when you said, Hey, maybe when the market's really hot, you might be, you know, a little bit less risk averse, but what, help us relate that to the audience, right? A lot of folks are understanding of single family homes. And when the industry was really hot, you saw people, maybe they were looking at offers based on what the loan product that they were getting, meaning, hey, I'm probably going to choose this offer because this person's putting 25% down instead of 5% down. So which means they have a little bit more reserves, right? Did any of the folks or sellers that you guys worked with looked at the loan product you guys were pursuing in order to close on a property and factor that into decision? Or is this completely different because it's commercial? Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, it tends to be a different beast with it being commercial. Um, the sellers are kind of setting their, you know, their price based on uh, input from their broker and, you know, if they have their own internal analysis that they're running. And then really it, it kind of feels uh, like it's kind of up to us to find the debt product that would allow us to purchase the property. Or if not, then we, we just need to pass on it. Um, and then, you know, to kind of come back to those three things we're looking at, I think it's just a big, uh, takeaway point is you can't really take the same strategy, uh, or apply the same strategy. You have to, you have to kind of be thoughtful of where you're at and make sure you're matching up your strategy with how you're going to buy it, how you're going to own and operate it. And eventually, um, you know, you know, sell or exit the property with, with those, you know, cause for instance, you know, if you're a fix and flipper, let's say, and, and, and you buy something at the peak of the market, then it starts to drop. Like that's a bad situation to be in. So I think that's sort of the single family uh, home analogy is you, you, if you're just taking the same approach, eventually the market cycle is going to burn you. Um, and, and so you have to be thoughtful where you're at. And the only thing I would say on that, Kent, is the sellers don't look at what product we're using, but they want to know that we're pre-approved or that we're a, that we're a qualified buyer. Um, so there are times where, you know, we'll present a pre-approval letter or something along those lines so that they know that, you know, we're serious, we have the funds and, and you know, we're players and, and, and qualified. I love that. The fact that you guys are adapting so well to the market and making sure that you're conservatively underwriting. You know, I feel like I face that too, where you're wondering, you know, should I go into this deal, even if the cap, cap rate is lower than the interest rate? So these are questions you have to ask yourself as an investor. But um, so can't share with me recently that you guys closed on a 36 unit deal in August, I believe. Um, I mean, how did you guys conservatively underwrite for the interest rates that have already risen to like 6% plus or 7%, you know, how yeah. are you guys adapting to that different type of environment? Are you basing it on, you know, increasing basis points in your exit strategy or, um, you know, any other way? 
Yeah, that deal, <laughs> the debt on that deal was a moving target up until, um, honestly, up until like a day before closing. And that was a strange deal because there was so much up in the air um, and, and not sort of standard or, or typical, I'd say, of, of sort of our past purchases. Uh, but that one, the LTV ended up shifting from like 80% to 75% um, over the course of of us, you know, sort of um, submitting an LOI and then closing. Um, the other thing that changed too was um, this had some capex that that needed. Uh, we wanted to bake into the loan, and that was one of those last minute surprises where, um, if I remember right, I think the terms were essentially like the it was uh, the loan amount was going to be the lesser of either um, I think it was eighty percent of uh, the purchase price or. 75% of the um, kind of after repair value and it came back um, lower than what we were expected. So our CapEx, we were hoping to bake in and had done previously without any issues at all. Uh, really, we weren't. We had to essentially just bring extra funds at close and have them held back for um, for these capital improvements that we wanted to do. Um, and then along those same lines, we actually still got the rate pretty decent. I, I, I went back and looked, the rate was like still four and three quarters. Um, but uh, it was more the, like the LTV that had changed, or in, in this case, you know, kind of the, the loan to cost uh, uh, ratio that, that changed on us. Um, and, and so that that required us, you know, coming up with more capital at closing, which we actually had a partner on this deal, which was not you know, a fun conversation to have. So it was the first time we ever did a deal with this particular partner to say, hey, I know you were supposed to bring in X, but we need you to bring in you know, that plus some extra money. That's great that you guys had that conversation with your investor. I mean, are you finding with capital expenditures <laughs> that you have to allocate for that preemptively with a certain amount? Or are you finding that whenever you guys do go under contract, are you having a property manager assess that capex or a general contractor? How are you guys going about that? Yes, yeah, so that's that's some of what I do. Um, Jared does all the number crunching, thank God. Uh, so he'll be doing the majority of this, the talking today. Uh, yeah, so before we close, I'm out there, boots on the ground, walking every unit, obviously walking the exteriors. <clears throat> with our uh, property manager and we put together uh, a to-do list for each unit, uh, what we think we're going to have to do. Um, and then we just kind of put together, you know, we get quotes on that and whether it's a roof or, you know, parking lot, whatever it may be. And then, uh, you know, we'll, we'll present that uh, to the lender and, and have it baked in. Amazing. Love it. It does, it does it. reduce the, the sting a lot, you know, instead of having to then, you know, close and then come up with even more money to, to get those, those repairs done. It's baked into the loan and it makes it much more, much more manageable. I mean, how did you guys approach that conversation with your investor? Like, hey, we need more money. <laughs> well, I, I, that's a great question. I was just going to say, you know, I think every time we've been on this podcast with you, can we always say we only run with good dudes and dudettes. And thank goodness this was a really good dude. <laughs> uh, somebody that um, it has a very, very, very high net worth. You would never know it because he's just a, a dude, you know. 
uh, has grown up in multifamily. That's all he's ever done. Uh, uh, he's specialized actually in affordable housing, um, him and his family. And so he, he got it. He understood. Um, he did, he really didn't give us any kickback or, or question anything. Cause again, Jared was on top of explaining why we were where we were. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's why we run with good people. <laughs> and I, and I think that I really need to emphasize that point you guys just made. Not only are you guys, you know, investing with good people, but you had like a philosophical alignment or you're picking your investors wisely. Some folks out yeah. there nowadays, they might just be like, Oh, whoever's willing to give me money, I'm just going to take it. But they don't understand how much work it is and the responsibility and the burden you must take on and carry on your back when you're taking money from other people. Um, having a very difficult conversation like this, where you're doing a capital call where you're in the beginning of the deal, like that could, that could, you know, sour a lot of relationships if you guys don't manage it well and, you know, communicate that effectively. And knowing that that person had experience in multifamily, that probably made the conversation a little easier from what, from the sounds of it. So yeah, maybe okay. let's, let's talk through the deal a little bit, right? It was like a, it was like a very changing environment. So how did this deal come to you guys? And tell us a little bit more about, you mentioned you had a partner, like at what point did you bring the partner in? Like, did you guys do a lot of due diligence first and then brought them in? Or, hey, deal came through, you guys talked to the investor right away, and you're like, okay, we think we have the capital here, and then let, let's try to underwrite it a little bit more deeply. How, tell us a little bit about that. How did the deal come up in the first place? Yeah, we uh, we had a broker bring the deal to us. It actually had been sitting there for a while, so that was kind of one of the the early signs of, hey, the market's changing because it you know wasn't under contract in like three days. Um, and it's in a secondary market where we – had expressed some interest. Uh, and so we decided to take a look at it. And that's, you know, this sort of broker relationship is 100%, you know, to Dane's credit. He, he does a, an awesome job of just networking with people and um, is just his his genuine self. And, and I think that's where he can make that connection is um, he's not trying to act like, you know, we're, we are some company that we're not. And, um, just shows his true self. And so this, this broker has been super kind to us and, and sent us, you know, several deals, including this one. Um, we like the market. Um, and then similarly, the investor is someone Dane had, had been, you know, he was introduced to and um, put in a lot of time and, and effort just talking to them and building up that relationship. And uh, Dane always would say, I don't know why this guy wants to do business with us, but uh, <laughs> for some reason he really wants to, to do business with us. Uh, it, because uh, as Dane mentioned, I mean, this guy's is, is an incredibly high net worth individual and you, know, you feel like he could take his money and kind of do whatever, you know, he would prefer to do it. And so we were super uh, humbled that he would want to invest with us in our you know, mission to provide good, clean, affordable housing. Yeah. And it was an area, an area of Columbus where there's a, a, a tremendous amount of potential growth. Uh, we're not afraid of secondary markets and, and things like that. Um, but this was a rural area. Um, and so we had some questions and concerns, uh, did our due diligence, maybe even more so than, uh, than usual because it wasn't in Columbus proper, it was just outside. <clears throat> and, um, <laughs> Funny story, uh, our property manager grew up in this town. And so, you know, once we remembered that, we had done our homework and then we went with him and said, oh, gosh, we forgot you grew up here. What do you think of this deal? And he was 
uh, he was all for it. I think one, because he didn't have to leave his backyard really to, to get to the properties, but, uh, but also he knew, um, that it was a, a good deal. I don't think it was a, a grand slam, but it was a solid double or triple with a potential for being a grand slam. Um, and, and that was reassuring also, but, you know, working with our partner on this, I don't get intimidated or uh, awestruck when I meet celebrities or, you know, whoever. Uh, I was intimidated with this because I'm not, I, I know how to underwrite and I'm, I'm, and I know the numbers, but Jared, that's his specialty. Uh, it, it was a little intimidating at first for me, you know, being face to face. I, we went to, well, you can see it in the background here, some Columbus crew games together and talk business. And um, it, it, uh, it, 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 it was a struggle for me initially, but then you just realize like, Hey, we know what we're doing. Just, just stick with the foundations of, of what we do. Don't try to promise the world. Um, and, um, you know, and, and present the deal as, as the deal and just be upfront and honest. And, and it, it worked out great. And I, I'm hoping we can do, you know, many, many, many more deals. And I think that's where maybe where I felt the pressure was. <clears throat> uh, I wanted this to be a grand slam so that this, this person that we kind of look up to and has mm -hmm. the network that we would, would love to tap into from time to time also, um, you know, we want to prove ourselves to him and make him money and make him happy. Yes. Um, and, you know, since we've closed, he's been nothing but, you know, laid back and, oh, hey, could you send me this, the monthly numbers and um, understanding that the first year is the first year. It's it's mm -hmm. not five where we're doing a cash out refi. We're, we're still stabilizing and, um you know, it putting money in, uh, and, and so when you're upfront and honest and straightforward with, with an investor like that, I think they can do nothing but appreciate it. And I love that. I'm, I'm so thankful you're being honest that you felt intimidated, right? Cause that's just like the feeling of, of growth. Um, that that's like, I tell people all the time when I signed my first real estate deal, I was nauseous that whole night. I, I was throwing <laughs> up. I, I couldn't, uh, <laughs> I couldn't eat that night. And now when I have friends that are doing like big things, I was like, and they're like, I'm nauseous. I was like, dude, I felt that before. That's, that's the feeling of growth. And I'm so glad you called that out so that our listeners, when they're about to sign their first deal and they're feeling nauseous, they were like, okay, I, I remember hearing about this from Dave. Yeah, <laughs> and Jared. Yeah, for sure. And just, just revisit your numbers and, and take mm -hmm. a deep breath, go back to your principles of, of, uh, the underwriting, you know, and, and make sure that you're not, you know, pencil whipping the deal you, that you're not making it work uh, by taking unnecessary risks that mm -hmm. uh, conservatively um, conservative, conservative, conservative underwriting. And, and if, if it still makes sense and you're not forcing the deal, then, then yeah, go for it. <laughs> no, completely agree. And I want to make sure I ask this question, right? Because you guys mentioned you guys were entering a secondary market. Um, that's going to be very similar to some of the newbies out there where they're entering a new market for the first time. And you mentioned you guys had some concerns. What were those concerns? And what was addressed by the property manager versus you guys just being very conservative in your underwriting? 
I think one of our biggest concerns was we were we were leaving the nest. Uh, I mean, we we do Franklin County, Columbus really well. We had you know uh, great connections with uh, Section Eight there, and and you know this was this was going to interrupt that playbook of of how we kind of uh, approached previous deals, which was looping them in, getting an idea on maybe what we could get on the rent side. Uh, and we had to build all new connections, even though it's one county to the east. Yeah, and just with it being a smaller, more rural town, you know, you have some concerns like, okay, what's the primary industry in that, you know, secondary or tertiary market and how stable is that? And if that production plant or whatever it may be goes out of business, you know, how does that affect us now? It, that was not a, a big concern for us in this market because it was relatively close to Columbus. Still, there was tremendous growth that was just announced uh, headed out in that area. Uh, so we felt we felt comfortable taking taking that risk. Yeah. I want to add to that. I feel like. <laughs> I feel the same way as any one of you probably did with your first deal. You're just nauseous. You're like, oh my God, am I analyzing them numbers correctly? Did I do enough homework? So at some point, you've, did you guys ever experience that where you wanted to get out of your paralysis analysis mode? And then finally, when you took that jump, you're like, oh my God, okay, we're doing it. So the real work, do you feel like it started when you're underwriting or after you close the deal? That's oh, a great man. question. Yeah. Uh, the the deal, the the work for me from my standpoint is so front loaded. Uh, the two or three months before the deal closes, for me being on the ground, um, you know, or, I'm sorry, on the property, walking it, negotiating it, uh, you know, all that back and forth getting estimates for any capex we're gonna do uh it's a lot for me early on jared does the underwriting and and that's a lot um but boy that's that's a great question because then you got to carry out the 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 yeah. game plan you know so i i think it's truly in, a, in the affordable housing space now we're not buying an a-class property where we just turn the lights on and we're good to go i i think I think it's 12 to 18 months of, of work and then it starts to get a little easier. Um, yeah, I don't, don't mean to pop out. That's a great question. I don't know. Maybe Jared will say something. Different. I, always, <laughs> I always think it's after, I mean, when you get the deal, there's a lot of work that's very time sensitive. So that makes it feel hard, you know, cause you're trying to get you through your due diligence. Um, but then it's after, and especially when we have investors, that I I personally feel an extra um, level of pressure to deliver because yeah, you can make numbers on a spreadsheet look like whatever. You then have to go take those, uh, take that plan and execute on it, and so that's that's where I always feel it. Um, and then to the, the point earlier, I'm feeling nauseous about deals. I mean. We, we've bought several, I still feel like that every deal. And I, I heard one of our mentors, they own like over 1500 units. And he said, still, and they don't syndicate, they buy it all kind of with their own personal capital. He said, still the night of like closing, essentially he's, he doesn't sleep, he feels sick. I'm like, okay, good. So I think regardless if it's deal number one or you know deal 30, 
there's there's the butterflies that come with making a, a big decision. There's always that that fear, or you know, to your point, Kent. Actually, it's more likely a growth opportunity, but you know, you kind of perceive it as fear. I mean, do you experience that often? I I honestly experience that any time I'm about to do any kind of a presentation on underwriting, and I mean, just to put you in the hot seat, how did you underwrite? these deals, uh, like step-by-step, step, is there a process in which you go through or a template, or is this just something that you feel you're like, let's go and figure this out together? <laughs> no, we, we have a methodology um, when we're gonna evaluate a property, we kind of, again, at a very macro level, if it was a new market, we would make sure it kind of checks the boxes for um, you know population growth, job growth, uh, median income growth, et cetera. And then, you know, once we we know, okay, hey, we're gonna invest in this market. If we're looking at a deal, we we check like the uh, median income in the area, um, just to get a sense of what's it like in that general neighborhood. We then, you know, we, we touched on, um, you know, kind of market cycle, the debt and the exit strategy. That's always at the top of our uh, underwriting sheet. So, so it sort of forces us to think through that first before we then jump into the numbers. Um, right. I think it's tough, especially early on, like you can get so caught up in the numbers that you forget some. Uh-oh, another blooper reel. <laughs> He's from, he you always freezes. Him before you left off. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's that. funny. That's great. He has a really good approach to it, just originally on the market cycle. Yeah, um, right. Dane, do you help him out when it comes to doing some of the groundwork to tell him, hey, it doesn't look like, you know, this is our major employer in the area, or maybe, you know, do you actually take note of major employers in those locations? Yeah. Just to help him out? Yeah, absolutely. So he, he does the, the majority of the underwriting. I always underwrite also, uh, not as detailed as he does. Um, but you know, especially early on when we were buying our first couple deals, <clears throat> we would actually sit down and compare my underwriting to his and make sure that it was it was close. But yeah, now uh, that's a lot of what I do is is not just drive the complex, but drive the areas and and do the research on you know local employers and 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 the, sometimes the broker can provide that information for us also. Um, but uh, yeah, we, we get a real good feel for the neighborhood, um, uh, not just employers, but what are the surrounding single family homes look like? Um, if we can buy the ugly duckling on the block, then that's sometimes a good thing because we can you know bring that up to uh, to, to whatever you know what the neighborhood is in terms of cosmetically and then, you know, financially and, and get good people in there too. I mean, it sounds like you guys are doing a targeted market analysis from what it sounds like. And um, especially in section eight, from what I've found, we do have to focus on the median zip codes because that's going to determine the type of rent that's acceptable to HUD for these section eight properties, um, just based on the rent comparability studies. But are you finding that you guys are looking out for not just median rents, but also like fair market rents, or um, you're also considering maybe um, some income restrictions for those types of asset classes. Yeah. So, you know, the nice thing 
with uh, with Section Eight here in in Columbus is they have their whole formula, and and we, as we talked about day one when we when I met with them, I wanted to learn how they operated, and so we kind of use that formula, and and we'll reach out to them from time to time to find out what uh, before we close on the deal what what they'd be willing to pay uh, per unit, one bedroom, two bedroom, three bedrooms, and we kind of stick we kind of stick very closely to what section eight would, would, uh, you know, would pay. Um, we keep it affordable. Uh, and that's the thing. Sometimes the entrepreneur or the business person in us gets, I don't want to say greedy, but gets excited. Oh gosh, you know, across the street, that B class just raised rents to $1,100 a month, but that's not our vision. Um, so it's, it's, it's a balancing act, but we base a lot of a lot of it off of of what uh, Section Eight would would pay, what the going rates for other comps are, um, uh, and and try to stay in that in that realm um, for sure. Have you guys worked with any um, of those third party report analysis people to or appraisers to be able to provide you with the rent comparability studies or any kind of comps for the area, or is this just something you guys get from your broker when you? preliminarily purchase the property? Yeah, it's mostly from uh, the broker. Um, yeah, I, I, I would say we've never used a third party. Um, actually, one of my uh, best friends from undergrad, her uh, husband does that. Uh, so early on, I, I think with our first deal, him and I grabbed lunch and I said, please tell me that we're doing this right. Yeah. <laughs> tell me what, what are, what do you think of the neighborhood? And, the, and he does the whole needs analysis also. And, you know, he, he gave some, uh, some confidence to us there, but yeah, we, we go basically on what, the, what brokers uh, uh, present. Um, I almost always then double check that with a, uh, independent or another broker that, that we deal with who may not be involved in the deal um, just to make sure, you know, that the rents, that the pricing, uh, it makes sense. For sure. I love that, that you guys have been able to, you know, bounce ideas off of you and work with those relationships you've already pre-established. That's yeah. awesome. And before and Jared knocked off, I was like, what's going on? He's explaining to us deep dive about how he approaches these properties, but I'm really happy that you guys, can collaborate with one another. I mean, Jared, are you finding that right after you get these expected um, gross potential rents, are you looking into um, the expenses or doing just a quick napkin underwrite once you do these, the underwriting? Yeah, I, I think we, you know, with time have been able to figure out a way to kind of uh, somewhat like with a reflex or knee jerk, uh, you know, kind of reaction to say like, is this one worth looking into or, or not? Um, and so, yeah, we'll do just a quick kind of back of the napkin, just, Hey, what does this pencil out? Like, and then if so, great, we'll, we'll spend some extra time in there. And then, um, you know, I think Dana mentioned it, we, we sort of underwrite it independently and, and I try to do a, you know, more, more in-depth analysis since, especially since we hold them long-term, try to do, you know, like a, maybe a seven to 10 year projection, uh, because the first year or so it may not always look great, but over over that longer haul, and if we have that mindset of holding them long term, we want to have a, an understanding of what it looks like. Yeah, and there's so much collaboration between him and I, and everything we just talked about, Andrea. Uh, various brokers, um, you know, I feel like 
I sleep well the night before. Maybe I'm just too dumb to 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 be uh, concerned, but yeah, I, I feel that night before it's almost like the night before a big exam in 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 college or in grad school where i've studied i've done all my homework i know the stuff inside and out i'm very confident going into the test and and you know uh if it's meant to be successful it'll be it'll be successful but it's if it fails if we if we fail the exam it's not because we didn't try and we didn't do our homework you know we'll, we'll learn a lesson and 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 move on um so yeah, there's a lot that goes into it for sure. Nice. I honestly, that I'm very happy to just listen to how you guys collaborate and can work with each other as a team. You know, it's not just your relationship as brothers, but also the relationships you guys have fostered over the years with brokers, appraisers, friends of friends, right. private money. Um, well, we call them investors, essentially. We can't call them private money lenders in <laughs> commercial right. real estate because essentially... I mean, did, have you guys drafted a PPM at some point or a private placement memorandum after you've done the underwriting? Or is that something that um, you're doing once the LOI is submitted? I mean, how is how are you guys going about putting that out to investors when you're underwriting the opportunity? Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. So we've really done deals with essentially like friends and family. So people we know um, and, and have known typically for quite a while. Uh, so we actually don't have like a set drafted document. And in fact, we've never actually structured the deal with partners the same way twice, you know, more than once, essentially, we try to really customize it to the needs of the people uh, in the deal, obviously factored in with the deal and, and what we need to get out of it as well. And um, really and truly kind of like the core thing we we do is we just want it to be fair uh, for everyone involved in there. We, we don't want it to be like, Hey, let's use these people for their capital so we can, you know, have the deal and we're going to give them, you know, 5% equity or whatever. We want it to be super fair. We want it to work well and ultimately want anyone in a deal to come back and do a second or third or fourth deal with us too. Love that. And, and I wanted to make sure I call out the point where Dan, you guys mentioned like you guys kind of do your own independent underwriting where one person might go off and do their own thing, but you guys might come back together and have a meeting of the minds. Um, what type of value add opportunities like do you guys look for during the underwriting process? Is it just increasing rents? Because, you know, we've heard in in like market rent properties, people add in pet fees, people are add in parking fees, people add in, you know, renting uh, washer dryers from the, from the main apartment. That might not apply to affordable housing, right? So what kind of value add opportunities are there and how did you guys talk through them and incorporate them during your underwriting? Yeah, I mean, I'll start on that. I, I think... A lot of it are your basics. Like, uh, can we bring rents up to mar fair market, you know, affordable uh, uh, market rents? And, and there, is there upside in that, obviously? Uh, is there ability to bill back for water or, like you said, pet fees, um, uh, utilities? Is there a rubs program in place? Um, you know, a lot of the a lot of the basics right uh, there, I think. Um, and then as we're um, developing and becoming more efficient, you know, we we had this talk last night, late last night, <laughs> a few hours ago, uh, with our investors. We did our annual meeting, and we we keep saying efficiency, efficiency. We need we we want to get more efficient every year. And so, 
that's something we've learned this year is is um, you know partnering with uh, with a, a group that will ensure um, the tenants so that if they break their lease and leave early or they do damage to the property um, that repair and maintenance budget is going to go down because that insurance will cover us so that's another way where we can quote unquote make money you know um, by not losing money. Um, so it, it's a lot of the, your basics. Yeah. You know, the first thing I think we always look at is where are the, the current rents and what can we bring them up to and still make it affordable. Um, and then, like I said, you know, all the other, all the other basics, but we're also learning every year, like, oh, this is a great way to be more efficient and, and, and not lose, you know, not have to shell out $3,000 or $4,000 to, to fix this, this apartment or have an apartment vacant for three or four months while we get it turned. Yeah. I, I'd say the other thing, you know, we want to look for too, is just, can we run it better? Um, you know, probably the, one of the best deals we we've ever bought, it was just really heavy on the expense side. And, and we were able to, um, you know, look at those expenses and sort of compare that to some of our, our other properties and how they were running and also loop in our property managers to say like, gosh, you know, what do you think repair and maintenance would be on a building like this having walked it? Um, and those are nice plays because you can save money, you know, day one without having to invest any money into the building. You know, usually if you're going to bump rents that typically comes with vacancies and, and unit turns and that costs money. And certainly, you know, we're, we're all about reinvesting back into the building, but I think sometimes looking for those, um, opportunities to run it more efficiently, um, you know, or, or don't cost any money in, in our nice place. So, so yeah, that's the only other thing I would add, I'd piggyback on top of what Dane said. I mean, speaking about running it more efficiently, are you guys originally looking at the expense ratio and where it should be operating at, or do you just go line by line with all the expenses and see if they're really necessary, if they need to be bumped up in the underwriting? Kind of both, honestly, like a knee, kind of that knee jerk test is just the expense ratio and then looking at, um, you know, kind of the various line items, which we sort of group into bigger categories. Uh, but to see like, you know, what is their repair and maintenance cost, you know, per door and what do we think we can do it as? Obviously, we, we've been using the same management company for a while, so we, we've gotten really familiar with, you know, uh, what to expect from certain expenses. And so if we if we isolate those then you know we we feel pretty confident there and then we usually again we'll have that conversation with our, our management company just to make sure that yeah they're in agreement that that's you know if we think we can you know be 70 percent of that number let's say that that they think that's a reasonable target too that's so interesting that you're able to bounce that idea off of your property management team you know those all those ideas on how you can efficiently operate the property and are you finding that it's helped you or benefited you finding a property manager that's been able to operate at higher occupancy and then you can trust them more in these types of deals. Yeah. I think honestly, finding a management company that knows like affordable housing, knows that space well, you know, is very um, efficient in how they, they run their operations. They're familiar with section eight. Uh, I think that for us was, was the key thing. And then, you know, over time working on our relationship with them in terms of, you know, how we would like our, our properties run, um, I think has been, has been great. Yeah. 
and not just how they're run, but how we uh, analyze the property pre-purchase. Um, do you think this is a good area of town? Yes or no? And, and you know, we get interactive with them on that. And, and like I said, I'm on site with <clears throat> the uh, property manager. Uh, I don't deal with electric. I don't understand electric. I don't want to touch electric heat. So we don't even have to have that discussion. He's making, he goes right to the electrical box uh, and is making notes. I'm looking at everything else and, and we're making notes and it's, it's a collaborative, um, a collaborative effort. And it's, it, it is very, um, it, it's, it's really slick and really nice now. Now, not every property management group will, uh, will work with affordable housing. Um, and that's that's been frustrating because <clears throat> as big as Columbus is, uh, you know, there are some great property management groups out there that we've interviewed, but once they find out what we specialize in and where we are uh, in Columbus, they they don't go into those areas. That I think it's, it's a lot easier to manage a, an A-class property. Um, so, uh, you know, we're, we're lucky to be where we're at for sure. <clears throat> wow. That's amazing. You guys are so right about that. Any types of the, when you're comparing market rate deals to section eight, you definitely need a great operator, a good property manager to be able to provide that documentation because are you finding that the process for, um, rent increases or, uh, certifications of tenants, the, are those those are different versus market rate, right? Yeah, for sure. yeah, yeah, one hundred percent. It's completely different, and I think we shared this previously. I mean, in Columbus, uh, the Section Eight program has been outsourced to a third party, so that that added a whole nother wrinkle. Um, whereas uh, where this thirty-six unit property is, it's it's still you know the the Section Eight uh, still has their voucher program that they manage internally and. Um, that's certainly our preference. It's just one, you know, one less layer uh, of sort of redundancy there. Um, but yeah, the approach we take is definitely completely different for uh, like a voucher tenant through Section Eight than a market rate tenant. Usually takes a little bit longer because you have to have like the unit inspected, and if they're if it doesn't pass inspection, those those issues need to be remedied before they move in. So I think from just like an efficiency standpoint, is definitely less efficient initially to move in a section eight tenant or, or most of the time because of that inspection piece. However, uh, I think we find our section eight tenants, you know, they're sticky. Once they move in, they, they tend to stay. Uh, and so for us, it is worth a potential dip in efficiency to, to maybe that unit's vacant an extra week or two uh, to then have a tenant with us who, you know, we're, we're hopeful and optimistic will stay with us, you know, multiple years. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you guys for that. There's just the whole process that we're all learning step by step whenever we're working with affordable housing. And it's just something that takes years to develop. But um, the fact that you are underwriting for that, um, all the variances and also are you guys finding yourself underwriting for potential inspections or pre-REAC inspections or maybe uh, a refinance appraisal? I mean, how are you guys going about, um, you know, potentially underwriting for those safeguards? Yeah, it, again, just with that um, relationship with our management company, we we kind of know their, their base fee that they charge us. And then there's 
sort of a, a second set of fees that come with things like inspections. And um, we, we essentially just blend all that together to try to give uh, an idea of what, what that's going to cost from a management standpoint. We, we you know, on, on our underwriting document, it's all under our property management, but we, we essentially have it broken out between sort of the base management fee and then their, their sort of next level. Um, and, and work with, again, that good communication with our property management company to, to ask them, does this number seem right for any potential inspections um, that are going to be coming up for, whether it's for Section 8 or if we do like a cost segregation study, a refinance, anything like that. We we try to get their input on that. And um, that's just, you know, anyone new out there, or even if you're, you know, experienced investor, I think it, it's a simple thing, but there's that communication piece um, and not just making the assumption that, oh, the management company will do this. And this is what I think they're going to charge us. It's actually, no, ask them and get their input. And then they're more engaged and you get a true answer and um, everyone's on the same page. And I love that you guys set clear expectations. And I think there's been a common theme here, right? Where you guys are working very closely with the property management company throughout the whole thing. Uh, we've heard of market rate uh, apartments where property management companies charge like between three to 5%. What's the range uh, as a percentage of gross rents are you guys seeing from your property management company? Is there a specific number or range like six to eight, three to five? What are you guys seeing in your numbers and what are you guys using to underwrite? Yeah, we, we've actually even shopped around. Uh, don't tell our current management company, by the way. No, uh, we've even shopped around other management companies just because I, I think that's, again, another critical part. We're happy with who we have, but I think you always want to know just what are your options and is there a better fit? Um, I would say kind of for our portfolio size, 6 to 8% um, is, you know, the numbers we hear. Um, if it's going to be a percent of collections, you know, the other model um, that's been presented to us is more, you know, you're paying for the um, property managers and maintenance tech salaries, and then maybe a much lower percentage of, of rent. Uh, so maybe, you know, three to 4%, but then you're paying essentially, you know, the employees that are working on your property, their salary, their benefits, et cetera. So it's, it, it can be either or, but if it's straight collections, yeah, six to 8%, I think what we see. Got it. And now that you guys are up to 168 units, right? Are We've heard of people where there's a rule of thumb, like maybe you have a maintenance person every 40 to 75 units. Do you guys actually have someone full-time on staff now, or are you guys still relying on the property management company to kind of take care of these ad hoc work orders for repairs? Yeah, I, I knew you were going to go there. I thought you were going to talk about going vertical because that's something Jared and I had talked about um, and then being an entrepreneur and having multiple businesses in the past, the best thing about the businesses are your people. The worst part of the business is the people because there's payroll, there's workman's comp. There's... So we had looked into that and, and I was like, man, I, I don't want to do that again. So uh, we, we are uh, completely dependent on, on the property management group. Um, but again, it's communication, communication, communication. If we're going to take on another 76 units, they're, they're in the loop on that. They're, they know that it's coming so that they can start to add more, uh, more staff for sure. I mean, it, it's, it's a process to get to closing and they're, they're part of that, you know, every step of the way and, and are able to, to grow their team so that we can, you know, continue to work together. 
Love it. And I guess to maybe kind of wrap up this deep dive, right? Is there, we talked a lot about different things, but if there was like top two or three things that you guys think the listeners should be really mindful about when it comes to underwriting, what might those two or three things be, Jared and Dane? What would you recommend them to kind of really pay attention to? You want to go first and then I can make fun of your answers or? <laughs> Uh, number one, have Jared do the, the uh, underwriting. No, uh, you know, I would say conservative underwriting, conservative, conservative, conservative. It's real easy to pencil whip the deal and make it look like it's going to produce a million dollars a year. Um, but you can't live in fantasy land. You have to live in the, in the, the big boy real world. And um, so you know, almost plan to fail, you know, make sure that <clears throat> you're not overestimating what you can get rents to make sure you know what the taxes are going to go uh, up to because taxes kill uh, <laughs> almost every deal that we look at. Um, and, and that's something that you need to be very aware of. Make sure that, um, <laughs> you know, when I when I do sit down and do a real in in depth underwriting, I'm going through it two, three, four times to make sure that it makes sense um, and that I didn't miss anything. If your expense ratios are either really too good or too bad, there there's something going on there. So the the big thing I would say is you have to be conservative, especially if you're bringing in investors because. You know, we said this last night is we protect their money much more than than ours. You know, if we lost somebody's money by uh, aggressively and stupidly um, underwriting a deal, I, I would be devastated. And so um, the conservative and realistic underwriting process um, is is a must. And then, you know, the other only other thing I would say is you have to get a finger on the pulse of that deal. You have to know uh, what is our expected tenant turnover as soon as we take this over. Um, CapEx, what, you know, did you walk every unit and, 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 and get proper and, and accurate estimates for whatever you're going to have to do to that property to bring it up to, to snuff? And then allocate, you know, for that in in the underwriting, you you have to have a, a good grasp of that. Yeah, I think he said one to two. That was like fifty. But uh, <laughs> no, I mean to to, to Dane's point, one hundred percent. I mean, we are very conservative, and and honestly, that may actually have when the market was hot, we may have lost deals because we just weren't willing to make certain assumptions. Um, but yeah, I'd be conservative. And then honestly, like another set of eyes. I mean, I, I joke around with him all the time, but um, you can just get lost in the numbers and somebody to just look at it differently to see something like, hey, that expense ratio seems way off. I think it's just great. Um, you know, just just because um, having, yeah, having another set of eyes is never going to hurt on something like that. So yeah, I'd keep it simple keep it conservative with, with your assumptions and be surprised on the upside and then have somebody double check it. Um, and then eventually get to a place where you have like a, a kind of systematic approach. So you don't forget certain things like, Oh shoot, you know, did we, 
Did we adjust for property taxes coming in? Um, I, I, those would be the biggest takeaways. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Andre, did you have anything else to add based on your experience with underwriting a lot of deals there? Anything else you recommend for the audience to pay attention to? You know, there's these general rules of thumb. I feel like we're always put on the hot seat as underwriters. Like, come on, what's the numbers hot seat? But, you know, there are rules of thumbs that I follow, you know, like vacancy wise. I usually anticipate like a 10% if it's not higher already. Um, bad debt collection, I would say 3 to 5% I anticipate, you know. And then there's like legal expenses. You're going to form a new entity. What are those costs going to be? Are you going to syndicate? There's... Um, a lot of legal expenses that go into just the acquisition of a property and making sure that you incorporate your own um, LLC for the property. And then one that an LLC that operates it and another LLC that is able to um, ma manage the money. So um, I guess if there's, do you guys follow any rules of thumb for your underwriting? We have some, we've gotten away from some of them with just more, um, again, kind of ex expected performance with input from the property manager. So instead of having like a hard and fast rule of, hey, we think repair and maintenance costs are gonna be, you know, between 450 and $600 a door, you know, we, we are really just getting input from our, our property managers. And, and I use, I kind of use some of those rules of thumbs to, to again, sort of gut check certain things, but um, we got bit on a deal where it was all kind of rules of thumb and less, um, are those rules applicable for this property in this area? And so that's where a lot of this more, you know, collaborative approach with our property manager uh, came from is we need, we need their experience since they are the ones truly running the property for us. We need their experience and their input on these, on these numbers or else they're just numbers on a spreadsheet. I no, I love that. I think this has been an amazing conversation, guys. So much value. And thanks for providing and talking through some of the rules of thumbs and also clarifying for people that rules of thumbs are just rules of thumbs. Nothing really beats experience. Nothing beats having a property management company or a contract walk the property with you. Well, hey, so if you guys, if the audience wants to get a deeper uh, learning about underwriting, we're actually planning to have Jared walk through his underwriting spreadsheet, uh, his whole process live on YouTube. If you want to be informed of this next live, please follow us on Instagram, uh, subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash at Kent underscore he, and make sure you follow Aspen Realty Co's website, get onto their newsletter so you can actually be informed of the next uh, live session as we go deeper and deeper into the entire process of buying a property in multifamily that's related to affordable housing from beginning. So Dane, Jared, Andrea, thank you so much for coming on to the show today. This has been an amazing conversation. I had a lot of fun. I had a lot of laughs. So thank you guys. And we'll have you guys back on soon. Absolutely. Thanks,